0: Oh, this is kind of embarrassing, but I thought I had another minute. I thought I could just grab a bite real quick, maybe, maybe you wouldn't notice. Has anyone ever been hangry? Yeah, yeah, me too. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. And and today when I got here, the entire auditorium it smelled like bacon. Thank you, Pantano Cafe. Right. Yeah, there's some amazing volunteers up there. So good. I bet if you're home, watching online, I bet you're eating bacon right now too, right? From your couch. In fact, I bet most of you wish that you were eating bacon like me right now, right? Oh, it's so good. Bacon, I think, is holy. It's like right up there with coffee. Mmm. Have you ever missed a meal for whatever reason, and then all you think about is food? It just consumes your thoughts and your energy, and you just start thinking about what you're going to eat next and how good it's going to taste. You're just daydreaming about food the way I'm going to daydream about this bacon for a really long time. Okay, but... We'll get started in just a moment. Now I'm just a little thirsty. I won't be able to talk if I'm thirsty, so give me just a second, I promise. We'll get started. (sighs) Oh, that's good. Okay, all right, are we ready? Are we ready to get started? Okay, let's do it today. We're continuing our series playbook And we're looking at Jesus' most important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically how he introduces the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Beatitudes. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I just, this is really good. I just need one more bite. That's it, I promise, and I'll be done. we'll get started, I promise. Mm. Oh, that's good, so good. I'm just so hungry today, I'm so thirsty. And luckily, that is exactly what we're talking about today. Jesus, in his greatest teaching, gave us guidance on what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's so radical, so countercultural, that to truly become like Jesus requires and even demands. A completely different life. The way of Jesus is not easy and if we are doing it right it will require everything. And this life, this playbook, this way of Jesus, it's detailed in the Beatitudes. And so far we've covered a lot of ground. You are blessed when you're poor. You are blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you're meek, and today we look at the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not for bacon, but for righteousness. Not for your next meal, or your favorite restaurant, or a decadent dessert, but for righteousness. Not for status or success or a loaded bank account, but Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not happiness or pleasure, but righteousness. Not for a relationship or ease or a good life, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness. And in this one phrase, Jesus lays out the primary priority in the kingdom of God, what should be our focus, our sole purpose, our greatest longing, what we should spend our lives chasing after. Righteousness. Righteousness. But what is righteousness? I am so glad that you asked. And we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking that today. But first, here's how I want to get started, beyond just my antics. I actually want to invite you to stand with me. If you're home, if you're watching online, please stand. We're going to read these first four Beatitudes together, because these are some of the most important words that Jesus ever spoke in his time on earth. And I want us to honor those. So will you read with me? These are beautifully profound words spoken by Jesus. And before we really dig in, I always think it's important to share a little context. Because the Bible is so complex, I'm constantly learning more. And as I was reading this passage, I actually caught something that I had never noticed before. So here's a general rule of thumb when you're reading the Bible. Chapter breaks, verse breaks, they're actually not that significant. They're simply there to just organize things, to help the reader. But the unintended consequence can be that it actually changes our understanding of what's happening. I'll show you what I mean. I actually believe the context for the Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls the first disciples and then the author says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 5, is when Jesus actually launches into the sermon on the mount. Here's why I think this is so significant. In Jesus' most important sermon, let's consider for a moment who is in the crowd. Scripture says the crowd is full of people who are sick. People with diseases, people in pain, people who are demon-possessed having seizures, people who are paralyzed. Can you imagine this crowd for just a moment, even if you have to close your eyes to visualize? This crowd of people who have been rejected, abandoned, misfits, outcasts. You know, one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he has zero pretense, This is not some Jewish celebrity crowd. The elitists aren't front and center. There's no hierarchy. And Jesus has this way over and over and over in the Gospels to center those without power, without status, without wealth. It's completely backwards from our cultural values. And it's exactly what the Beatitudes are all about. Matthew 5 starts this way. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, remember the crowd that's following him everywhere... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And when I read that, I I can't help but wonder if Jesus, in teaching his disciples, his followers, his closest friends, is using this crowd as an example. I almost imagine Jesus pointing to this crowd and saying, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's just an incredible way to set up this epic moment. And regardless of all the dynamics we may or may not understand as we read this passage, here's what I'm certain of. Jesus is the great equalizer. That his way is not about status or power or wealth. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This is really critical. And if you hear nothing else today, I really want you to hear this because it's that important. So do me a favor, just kind of lean in for just a moment because this is so important that you understand this. If you are here today and you feel like an outsider, like you don't belong, that your past disqualifies you. That the shame that you feel keeps you from being able to experience God's love. I want you to know that that is a lie. It is a lie because here is the truth. Jesus is actually writing an epic story and he is inviting you to be part of it. Not just part of it. You're not on the periphery. You are at the center of the good news and of the gospel. You belong here. You are wanted here. You are valued here. In a way that maybe you haven't ever experienced before. That's because the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom where the last shall be first. That's what the Beatitudes are all about, starting from the reality of who is in the crowd. So if you feel like an outcast, if you feel like you don't belong, if you feel unwanted, Jesus is saying, It's you. It's you I want. It's you I'm calling. It's you I'm inviting. Jesus says, You are blessed. Isn't that beautiful? I love Jesus. A few verses later, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness. Let's talk about this idea of hungering and thirsting for something because clearly Jesus isn't speaking of a physical hunger, a literal thirst, but certainly we can understand the metaphor he's using. It's when something becomes consuming. When we crave it, it becomes our sole focus, our primary priority, and we become desperate. And if we're serious about following the way of Jesus, our lives must reflect this hunger. Another word for hunger is desire. And joy in the kingdom of God is determined by what we desire. When I think of desire, I think of sports. Many of you know that I am a big sports fan. I shared that a few months ago. And as a result, uh, a lot of people talk trash with me about my football team out in the courtyard, which was a lot of fun. It made this football season a lot of fun. But I actually love all sports, every sport. I love the competition, the thrill, the excitement. I, I even love when the heartbreak when your team loses, Right? I love it all, everything from Little League to professional sports, I just, I get jacked. And I grew up in the Midwest in the 80s and the 90s, and I was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. You know what that means? Michael Jordan, right? Now, this is embarrassing to admit, but I used to pretend I was Michael Jordan when I was shooting hoops in the driveway, and I, I can't dunk, but obviously I, uh, I perfected the layup with my tongue kind of hanging out, the way that Michael Jordan would do, which is awesome. I look just like him, I'm certain of it. <laughs> I had, I've had one pair of Jordans my entire life, and it was in middle school. And I, I was so proud of these shoes, but I was too afraid to wear them. <laughs> so I would just sit at home, and I would shine them, and I would clean them. And then i just set them on the shelf and stare at them and admire them. I loved those shoes so much. I love Michael Jordan. And what I think make Michael, made Michael Jordan so great is he just had this other gear that he could hit. It was just unreal, superhuman. He just refused to be denied. Like the time he put his team on his back and scored 63 points in a playoff game against the Celtics. He just refused to lose. And what separates Jordan from other talented athletes is this hunger to win. It's his focus, his obsession. It's all he thinks about, and this drive is what sets him apart. It drove him to work harder than anybody else. Now, maybe basketball isn't your thing, but is anyone a fan of the Olympics? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, the closing ceremonies are tonight, and I'm actually super sad about that, because in our house, we have been binging on the Olympics, even curling. I've become a fan of curling this season. It's been so awesome. Uh, but, and, and I love the Olympics. I love uh, how connected I feel to our country, how patriotic. I love the stories of athletes who have overcome to just compete at the highest level. But let's think for a moment about stories that you never hear. My husband has a nephew. His name is Alex, and Alex is a runner. And Alex ran for the University of Texas for four years. And then he signed with Reebok. And this last summer, he ran in the Olympic trials for a shot to run in the Summer Olympics. And he didn't make it. He came up short. And so now starts a four-year process. He will train for four years, and the thing that blows my mind is that after four years of intense training, the outcome will often be decided in just a few moments. For some athletes, just a few seconds. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine the passion you have to have To commit to the process of being an Olympic athlete, the determination, the resiliency, the hunger, a hunger that would fuel you for four long years of intense training. What if, as Christ followers, we had that same passion, that same obsession? that same drive, that same hunger, but not for competing or winning, but for righteousness. It's an incredible thought. Jesus says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But what is righteousness? Righteousness in in many ways feels like the most complicated aspect of what Jesus is saying here. And for some of you, You have something in your mind when I say righteousness. And today may be a little bit different. So here's what I would just ask is don't check out. Stay with me because I think it will maybe be a little bit different. It'll all make sense at the end, I hope. Because here's my prayer that Jesus would expand our view, our understanding of what righteousness really means. I believe that he'll do that today if we're open. In the original language, there are actually three definitions of righteousness because language is so complicated. (laughs) Why have one when you can have three, right? There are three definitions, but I think all are so rich, so meaningful, and all really apply to what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. The first definition is justice. Equity. In fact, it's the New Living Translation that translates the word righteousness to justice. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. That's the first definition. The second one is character or virtue. And the third one is a heart that is right with God. That's the most popular, most common understanding of what righteousness is. And if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, even past the Beatitudes, Jesus actually comes back to this idea of righteousness again and again and again. It's a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he actually starts by saying this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus says two things here that I think are particularly interesting. First, he says your righteousness is a practice. That's how he refers to it. And I think that's significant because actually following Jesus is something you do. The second interesting thing that Jesus says is he's offering a warning and a really sober warning that our righteousness cannot be for show. He says you're doing it for me. Not to impress others, but for me. Again, this is so backwards from the values of our culture to be seen as the best. To be envied or honored by others. It's, Jesus here is talking about the sacred space between you and he. And it's a whole different motivation. It's for his glory, not to impress others. And that's a critical Difference. Jesus then talks about three aspects of training or practice. These are tangible, practical behaviors that reflect this idea of righteousness. Now, this is not a, an exhaustive list, but we often refer to these as spiritual disciplines. Spiritual habits is a term I prefer, but regardless of what you call it, this idea is critical to our faith. Here's why. Because the things we do... Do something to us. Did you catch that? The things we do, do something to us. And every time you practice a spiritual habit, your spirit gets a little stronger. Spiritual habits are also the primary way that we curate our desires. We have control over that. We can influence our hunger, and this is how we do it. Again, it's not an exhaustive list of habits, but it's a great place to start because it's where Jesus starts. There are three, in in Matthew chapter 6, there are three habits that Jesus describes. The first one is giving to the poor, and that's connected to that definition around justice and equity. The second one is prayer. That's a heart that's right with God. And the third one is fasting, which is connected to character. And I'll explain how these connect. We're going to talk about all three of these habits today. But I want to be clear that the habits are not the end goal. They are simply the means to an end. What is the end? The end is transformation. The end is a heart like Jesus. The end is Christ-like character. You know what the end is? The end is righteousness. The end is righteousness. Now, for an athlete, they train obsessively in their sport. This is actually a picture of Michael Phelps hitting the weights, the weight room. (laughs) It's probably what most of us look like in the gym, right? (laughs) And that's how I want you to think about this, that what makes an athlete special is actually what they do behind the scenes. It's the training that people don't know about, the training that no one will ever see. And as Christ followers, this is how we train for righteousness. Each one of these habits could be a a whole teaching in themselves. But I'm going to run through them quickly, just give you a brief overview. But I do want to invite you and encourage you this week, maybe pick one. Do a little deeper dive. Really sit with the words of Jesus and learn and study more. Let's look at the first one. It's giving to the poor. Giving to the poor. And this is really that idea of justice Or equity. Here's what Jesus says. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. In the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, the real reward isn't the honor you'll receive from others. The real reward is what you will receive from God. And giving to the poor, really, generosity in general is this opportunity to say, God, all I have is yours. You have blessed me, and I want to bless others. It's also an awareness of need. That as his disciples, God can use us to meet tangible needs both in our community and in our world as a way to bring a more just and equitable reality for all. But it's really critical that we understand what generosity is and what it isn't. Here's what it isn't. Generosity is not an attempt to control God. God doesn't need our money. You know what generosity is? It's about having a heart that is free from attachment. It's about having a heart that is free from the idol of money and things. That's what generosity is about. And giving to the poor is how we start to train for righteousness. The second spiritual habit is prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. I I love Jesus' honesty here. He like pulls no punches. He says, I know your heart. I know what you need. Don't be ridiculous. Don't make a show of it, right? But if you're like me, you've often wondered, if God knows our hearts, why do we pray, right? (laughs) Maybe that doesn't feel like it makes any sense, but here's why. Prayer transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. It opens the door for the Spirit to speak to our hearts, to bring conviction and truth. And it's in this place that we maintain our connection with God, our heart that is right with God. You see, we can hunger and thirst for the approval of others, but it will always leave you feeling empty. The real reward in our prayer time is this experience with God. We get filled in our time with God. That's the real purpose. That's the real reward. And prayer is how we continue to train for righteousness. The third spiritual habit is fasting. Jesus again says this, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, only to your Father who's unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We're going to talk a lot about fasting at our Lent service. It's coming up in just a couple of weeks. It's March 2nd. So mark your calendars. Make sure you're there that night. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. But for now, I just simply want to make the connection between fasting and character, that definition of righteousness. Paul in Galatians 5 speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. We spent the last several months of 2021 exploring the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God. And in that same passage, when Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he says that it is actually our flesh that prevents us from having a character like Christ. So if it is our flesh that prevents us from having a character like Christ, how do we deal with the flesh? We kill it. And we kill it by denying it. And fasting is one of the most practical ways that we do it. Literally, we are emptying ourselves to then allow God to fill us. Fasting is how we train for righteousness. So if you're tracking along, I hope you are. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness And then in Matthew 6, he comes back to this idea of righteousness again and again. He says, practice your righteousness, but don't do it for others. Do it for me. And then he has three spiritual habits. Giving to the poor, praying, fasting. That's how we train for righteousness. It's also how we curate our desires, our hunger, how we develop this insatiable appetite for Jesus, for more of him. Glenn said this in week one, that each beatitude is both a blessing and a reward. The blessing in this fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the reward? For they will be filled. They will be filled. Jesus again comes back to this idea of righteousness. Righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, and and it's at the end of Matthew chapter 6. He says it this way this time, But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. About 600 years before Jesus, God actually communicated this same idea in the book of Jeremiah. And he said it this way. He said, When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yeah, when you get serious about finding me, when you want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. Isn't that a beautiful promise? But, church, can I be honest with you for a moment? Here's my fear that many of us are just simply cultural Christians. Here's what I mean. Most of us would say that we believe in God. That's not the issue. Many of us would even say that we love God, and I believe that we do. But if we're honest, we don't want him more than anything else. We don't spend our lives hungering and thirsting after him. Our time isn't spent pursuing him. Our habits aren't focused on increasing a heart that is right with him. Our lives aren't centered around him. Instead, they're centered around success or money, popularity, comfort, ease, your children's sports. Instead, we've centered our lives around so many other things, money, relationships, status, And those things, even when we get what we want, often leave us wanting, empty, asking if that's all there really is, wondering if there is any more to life. Why? Because those pursuits, they will never truly satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Because that desire is so deep, so profound, that is a desperation that only God can satisfy. And he promises he won't leave us disappointed. Here's what I'm certain of. More than anything else, this is what I know. That God doesn't want to just be part of your life. He wants to be your Life. And unless he is, you will never truly understand what he has for you. Now if that sounds a little radical, then I believe that we are getting closer to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. And unless he is your life... You will never really experience what he has for you. Now, he won't love you any less, not at all. But you won't truly be satisfied until you're filled with him. But here's what I know. A desire for God always starts with an encounter with him. Because when we encounter his presence, when we encounter the love and the joy and the peace and the hope that only comes from his presence, we realize that nothing else will really satisfy. And his presence then becomes our obsession. So that's how we wanna end today, with an opportunity to encounter him. To get caught up in his presence. As you worship for the next few moments, my prayer is that you would allow the spirit to speak to you about what it looks like for you in your life to hunger and thirst for him more than anything else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Amen.